All right. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. This service is a little bit more stiff than second service, so I need to hear your voices. So thank you for indulging me for just a moment with that. Well, for the rest of the summer, we're going to pause on our study in the Gospel of John. We're going to pick that up again in September. Uh, we did the first half of the book, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 12, over the last several months. And then we're going to look at chapters 13 through 21, which kind of work together as a section this fall. And for the rest of the summer here, we are going to look at the Psalms together. John Calvin wrote this about the Psalms. He said, The Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not a single emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented as in a mirror. In the Psalms, the Holy Spirit has delineated all griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. Here we find the prophets portrayed as, portrayed as laying open to God all their inmost thoughts and feelings, summoning us also to examine ourselves so that none of our weaknesses and guilty secrets may remain concealed. It is certainly a benefit to us when all hidden places are discovered and the heart is brought into the light. I couldn't agree more. And if you are a person who's been around the church for a while and maybe been around some theological circles, theological churches, you see John Calvin and you think, uh-oh. <laughs> Just rest easy. John Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. People came behind him and created doctrinal camps using his name. Okay? And so if you are a Calvinist, and you're like, yes! Finally, the pastor quoted John Calvin. Just... Calm yourself down. He's a sinful human being, just like all of us. Had some good theology and some whack theology. And if you're the type of person who is like, oh no, the pastor quoted John Calvin. Calm yourself down. He's a man just like myself who had some good theology and some whack theology. And I think this quote is right on. As he engages with the Psalms and, and many other theologians and pastors and leaders throughout church history have seen this in the Psalms. That the Psalms engage our deep emotions. And many of us in the church, I believe, have been under-discipled in the realm of emotions. Under-discipled. See, discipled, it means to follow. We talk a lot about being and making disciples of Jesus here at our church. That's our mission. We're called to be apprentices of Jesus and to follow Jesus. But for many generations, and particularly in the West, discipleship for many of us has looked like more head knowledge, more Bible studies. Now, we ought to study the Bible. But often, we need, every time we, we study Scripture, we need the Scriptures to also reveal us to ourselves. It's not just about head knowledge of God. It's this holistic transformation as we engage with God through His Word. And so my belief as, I, as I've been in the church for 39 years, I literally was like born in a church, and I've been pastoring for almost 20 years now, and I have seen this played out time and time and time and time again, that Christians are under-discipled in understanding our emotions and our feelings. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro says, speaking of his own realization of this as a pastor, he says, externally, I had appeared kind, gracious, and patient. And he's sharing a story about having people over to his house and then freaking out at his wife because things weren't perfect, right? Put on a nice face for the company, but him and his wife are fighting. You ever been there? Right? Welcome to church. We're all fake. Externally, I had appeared kind, gracious, and patient when inwardly I was nothing like that. I so wanted to be present. I so wanted to present a polished, 
image of a good Christian that I cut myself off from what was really going on within myself. To feel is human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, others, and ourselves well. Why? goes on to answer that question. Because our feelings are a component of what it means to be made in the image of God. To cut them out of our spirituality is to slice off an essential part of our humanity. At the very least, the call to discipleship includes experiencing our feelings, reflecting on our feelings, and then thoughtfully responding to our feelings under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Again, I couldn't agree with him more, and I couldn't hate this quote more. Seriously, I'm working through this book right now with somebody actually, and I highlighted that last sentence, and I said, curse feelings. I don't like to go there. It seems flowery. It seems light. It seems like, let's just get some truth back into our heads. Let's reflect on God. And that's what the Psalms is going to do. We're going to look at Psalm 90 this morning, and that's going to bring us into the truth of God, but it's going to engage how the truth of God, the substance of God, engages with our internal emotions. At Park, we're going to continually drip all of this emotionally healthy junk on you. And so if you don't like this, I could give you some good churches that teach really good truth and continue to suppress the internal emotions. At Park, we're going to try to hold these two tensions together as we want to continually go on a journey of growing in intimacy with God, authenticity with God, and simplicity with God, both God, self, and others. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 90 to see how Psalm 90 engages the truth of God and the reality of mankind. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for this morning. Psalm 90 on page 496 in the Pew Bible. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as, as we have seen evil. 
let your work be shown to your servants and let your glorious power and your glorious power to their children let the favor of the lord our god be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us yes establish the work of our hands god would you use this prayer this text to meet us where we're at this morning Lord Jesus, and to remind us of what we have in you, pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. You may have a seat. As we look at this text this morning, I want to see it in kind of three sections. Three sections, life in context, life with contrast, and life of contentment. Life in context, life with contrast, and life of contentment. The first three verses here really put life into context for us. Look at it. It it tells us right away that this is a prayer of Moses. And so many of the Psalms are written by King David, and there's various other authors. This is one of the writings of Moses who wrote the first five books of the New Testament, but Very few psalms. This is the only psalm that he wrote. There are in his other books, there are prayers and songs similar to psalms. Psalms are an ancient poem, ancient songs that the people of Israel would sing to God. And so this one of David of Moses makes it into this passage here. And really what he's doing is he's giving us context for life. And without context, confusion reigns. How many of you have like had a school assignment and without context of, of, of what it meant or why it was given and it just created frustration? Or, or maybe you, you go to work and you're given a project and you don't have the whole picture and you're lacking context and you're frustrated. When I was uh, younger, I was building houses and I helped out building houses for a couple of years. I was the guy who would like push the mop behind people. Uh, that was my job. And before I went on this vacation, I was going, I went to Montana with a youth group for a week, and I was about ready to quit before I left on this vacation because I hated my job. And I didn't understand what I was doing, and they had given me this job to wrap Tyvek around the house. And I did not know what Tyvek was for. To me, it felt like a waste of time. And so Tyvek, it's the layer that goes between the OSB and the siding, and it helps create a vapor barrier between the elements, right? It helps the house cool and heat, and it helps keep water from getting trapped and mold growing in the side of your house. I didn't know this when I was putting up Tyvek. To me, it, it looked like wrapping paper. Like, this is ridiculous. Why are we wrapping a house? So I spent a whole week Tyvecking a house, hating my life, because to me, it felt pointless. I thought it was just to make the house look prettier, but then side you went over it. I'm like, this doesn't even make any sense. And I didn't ask questions because I didn't want to be that guy, right? So I just did what I was told. Then I went on this vacation, and I was complaining to somebody on this vacation with me about this. And he said, well, Tyvek is super important. And he explained to me what it does. He gave me context for my job. I went back to my job for the rest of the summer, and I gladly Tyvek'd every house because I understood why it was there. I had context for what I was doing, right? And life without context, anything that we do without context, it creates frustration. And many people in our world are living their life without context for the meaning of life, where life came from, for the origin of life. And sometimes, even in the church, we forget our origin story. We lose sight of the context of who God is and what God is doing. And here in Psalm 90, Moses is giving context for our very existence. 
this is a good place for us to start and to be reminded every person and every belief system has an origin story or a starting point. Ours, the, the Christian worldview and the Christian origin story is creator and creation. Look at what Moses says. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's this eternal creator who has existed before anything else was made. And before I talk more about this context, let's, let's keep in mind the context that Moses is writing here is communal. Look at verse one. He says, Lord, you have been not my dwelling place, our dwelling place. Look at the end of the psalm, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us. As we think about life and spirituality and how to interact with God and how to get to know God and how to live our lives in God and for God, we have to be reminded that this is a communal project. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. Church family, you and I, we need to fight against the American idol that is self-autonomy. That's a, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a hideous and anti-gospel movement in the West, in our culture, in many of our American values that pushes for self-made people, that pushes for autonomy, that pushes for individuality. We were not created to be autonomous. We cannot survive and thrive as autonomous beings, we are interconnected and interrelated, and this is deeply embedded in all the scriptures. This is the context for which you and I live. Moses knows it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. So many of us Christians in the West, even when we read the Bible, <laughs> we like interpret it that, Lord, you have been my dwelling place. And we think about our spiritual life and what God means to us and what God has done for us for getting that we are connected to a community of people. It's not just you and God, it's us and God. Let the, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us. Not individual favor for you and individual establishment for you, but upon the people of God. There's this communal approach to God. And Moses goes on to tell us in the beginning here, that life in context, it is that God is our dwelling place. Verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. So it's communal, it's together, but he's also this dwelling place for us. He is our, other translations may say refuge. Throughout the Psalms, we see God being referred to as a refuge, as a shelter. He is also in the scriptures, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is everlasting. He's the one who created all things. He's the creator. We are the creation. And in him, you and I have a home. This is even intentional here, this idea of dwelling place. We have so many people having babies in our church right now. And you new moms, you're reminded of this idea of the dwelling place, this child in the womb, this safe place for the child to be taken care of and nurtured and to begin to develop and to grow. 
This is the Christian idea of who God is for us. He's where we originate from. He is our safe place. He is our dwelling. He is our womb. That's where it begins. God is the originator of our life, and in him we find refuge and protection and hope. This is Moses, remember, reflecting on God being the dwelling place. And remember the history of the Old Testament up to this point. Abraham was a wanderer. So Moses comes after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Life in context, right? This is the people of God. God called Abraham to be a wanderer. He was without a home. He was a sojourner on earth. But God was his home, his refuge, his dwelling place as he wandered. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who was captive to his father-in-law for 14 years. That was his, his earthly dwelling for a period of time. But in his generation, he called God home. God was his dwelling place. God is the creator in the context for life. Like it, Try to visualize even Moses here saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling places. Is this idea of being enveloped in something, right? When you seek shelter from rain, shelter from the elements, you go into your home, you are enveloped by something, you are surrounded by it. This is the image that Moses is giving us of who God is. He is the dwelling place. He's the one that envelops us, that wraps his arms around us, that covers us. Abraham, as he was wandering, he found his home in God. Isaac, as he was captive to his father-in-law, found his home in God. God, Jacob, as a mobile farmer, found his home, his belonging, his refuge in God. And he would eventually be led to Egypt, where the nation of Israel would be captive for 400 years. Remember, this is when Moses now steps on the scene. And God is going to use Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. But in the midst of all that, these generations found their dwelling place in God. And then God uses Moses to, to, to release them, to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. And they wander the wilderness for 40 years. They lived in tents. They had a tabernacle, a mobile presence of God. But even in this, throughout all these generations, Moses is saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You have been our safety. You have been our refuge from the storms of life, from the attacks of the enemy, from the surrounding nations, from the elements. You are our safety. No other homes or dwelling places or, or, or safe spaces on earth provide what you provide for us. Now, safe spaces, let's think about that. Some of you are like all up into the news and culture, right? And so you've heard this term safe spaces and some people love the idea of having safe spaces. Other people are like, that's what's wrong with America. We're coddling our children. Here's the reality. And it's, if, you don't know, if you aren't up on the news, like safe spaces is a place where on universities and campuses, when a speaker comes in to speak who may offend certain people, they'll set up a safe space so that people don't have to be offended by the message. And I'm not gonna get into that. Think about that, whatever you want. Here's the reality. As human beings, we need a safe space. We're designed for it. This is what Moses is appealing to, saying, Lord, you have been our safe place. Because Moses knows that there's nowhere else to look in this earth for a safe place. 
If you're trusting a church or a politician or a professor or a university or a school or a neighborhood to create a safe space for you, it is going to not work. You're going to be exposed to things that rattle and hurt and, 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 and crush your soul. This is the history of scripture. This is the history of life. And here Moses is saying, we are designed to have a safe space to go. Human beings need a safe space to go. And ultimately that is in God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to replicate it as the church and as the people of God, right? We should. But keep in mind that people will let you down and you will let other people down. And so the context for our life is to run to God, the ultimate safe space who has existed for generation to generation to generation, providing an open arms and a place to run. Moses says, everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our God has eternally existed. And from eternity, he has decided to make a people in his own image and likeness from the dust of the ground. And again, here's context, right? There's a lot of question right now about what is life? What is mankind? What is man? What is woman? And our origin story, the Christian origin story, and so just keep in mind, like, this should cause humility in us. There's billions of people on earth who don't believe or agree with the Christian origin story. And so we can't come at them with the assumption that they do. We do. This is our origin story. This is what we believe, and we do believe it to be true. But we ought to engage people who don't with humility, saying, yeah, I think there's some humility to just say, yeah, this is my origin story. This is, this is what I choose to believe is true. And give space for other people to share with you what their origin story is, what they believe to be true, what, what they think the context for their life is, the ultimate context, right? And I think in those conversations, you will be more listened to than if you just try to impose your origin story and worldview on another person's origin story and worldview. So this is the Christian worldview. This is what Moses is telling us. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. So God is the creator, right? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has always existed. He's existed eternally. He has created all things that we see and know and touch and taste and see and smell. And he has created us, verse 3, from the dust of the ground, he says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And this is a condition of the fall. Our origin story is that God created man and woman good in his image and likeness. From the dust of the ground, he breathed into man and woman the, the breath of life, and he said it is good. And we were, we were created to live eternally with him in perfect union, no fracture, no brokenness. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 communicates. This is what Moses is reflecting on. Even this dwelling place, this idea of the original garden, you've been our dwelling place for generations, and, and now we experience fracture and brokenness, but you remain our dwelling place, and, and he reflects on this idea that we are returned to dust He's reflecting Genesis 3.19. In Genesis chapter 3, it's when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3.19, we're told that by the sweat of your face, this is God speaking directly to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread 
until you return to the ground out of which you came. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is humbling. It's one of the things that I love about Good Friday service over at Elmwood Church. We partner with them and go over there, not Good Friday, uh, Ash Wednesday service. We go over to Elmwood for Ash Wednesday, and we actually put the ash on your forehead and say, from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. Like, human life is important. We're created in the image and likeness of God. But it's now mortal, right? We have mortality. Our bodies are breaking down. They are wasting away. And Moses here reflects on that. And he says, keep in mind, this is your life in context. You will not live forever. Your body will return to the ground and it will return to dust. This is context. It ought to help us to hold life a little looser and to open up our hands. And, and then we're going to move into seeing life in contrast here, verses 4 through 11. So that's kind of the context that Moses gives us for life. God is our dwelling place. He is eternal. He created all things. We are created beings. God is immortal. We are mortal. God is eternal. We are temporal. And now he, 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 it's kind of some more context here, but also a contrast, right? light and dark. We're we're seeing a contrast between God's life and our life. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Though God has eternally existed, time doesn't impact him in the same way that it impacts us. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. And, and here he's taking some of that flood imagery from Genesis and saying that, that mankind is mortal. We are underneath the reign and the rule and the judgment of God. And they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades. And this time of year is a, a good time to see this in action. If you get up early in the morning and if you're the type of person who waters your grass or, or flowers or plants in the evening or morning, like they look kind of vibrant in the morning when it's cool. And then by tonight, they're going to be withered and look dead. This is the process. And Moses, Moses is comparing our life to this, that, that God flourishes us and then we fade away just like that. Your life like a day. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger by your wrath, we are dismayed. Well, this verse causes some angst for people. What do you mean that God has anger and that God has wrath? Wrath simply means God's steady opposition to what hurts his creation. Anger, it's an emotion, right? God has emotion. So if you're the type of person who has grown up in a stream or around a culture where it tries to stuff emotions and says, don't be angry, that's actually not a biblical response. God himself is angry. Jesus himself said, be angry and do not sin. Anger is an emotion which responds to injustice, something that has been wronged. And there's a way in the emotion of anger that you respond impulsively in the flesh or you respond in a godly way. That's the reality with all of our emotions. Emotions are not sinful. Emotions are reflective of God. And they teach us something, and they show us something, and we can follow the emotion to understand what's going on, and then we have to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, say, am I going to respond to my emotions in the flesh, 
or with godliness. And so when it says here that God has anger, that he has wrath, this reveals God to be good to us. Like, if you don't have anger over injustice, if you're not opposed to things that hurt other image bearers, you're indifferent. You're complicit. You're not reflecting God. And here, we're reminded that that God has anger and wrath towards the things that we do and who we are when we oppose God's righteous rule and reign. And he says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We're seeing this contrast here. That, that God is light, and you and I, we dabble in dark. He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we're seeing here this contrast in these verses between 4 and 11, that, that time is different for God than it is for us, and that we are different than God, right? God is eternal. We are mortal. Time is quick for God. Time is long for us. We are, we are oppressors and opposers to God's will. And because of that, his anger and wrath is upon us. We have iniquity, wrongdoing, missteps, and secret sins, and God has light. We dabble in dark, God is light. I love this psalm here, Psalm 36, 9. It says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Is that contrast. Remember back in the day when we had like an old tube TV when I was a kid and like we tried to get channels on and like you had to go and mess with the contrast on the TV to try and get the color to come out a little bit more. That contrast is a good thing. What we're seeing here in this psalm is that Moses is pulling out this contrast between God's holiness, his light, his radiance, and his life, and our broken state. We dabble in darkness. We are broken. We are marred. We are fallen. And here, now this is David in Psalm 36 saying, in your light do we see light. That's the contrast. We can't even see the light of God without God illuminating his own light to us. This, uh, this verse here in Psalm 90, verse 8 He says, you have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. This is an opportunity for us to just come before God in confession and repentance. Say, God, reveal to me where I have gone wrong. Reveal to me my iniquities. Reveal to me my secret sins. Like so much of how we hurt other people and how we've been hurt by other people is because of things that we're not even aware of. Each one of us, we, we do things to other people that we love and care about that hurt them because we harbor secret sin. And, and it might be secret sin, like sin that, you've, that you're aware of, that you're keeping hidden. It also might be sin that you're totally unaware of, like just the natural outworking of your own makeup, your own brokenness, and you've been hurt by other people. Sometimes it's, it's intentional sin against you. 
Other times, it's them acting out in certain ways that they're not even aware of. It's, again, either it's a secret sin that they're hiding or it's a sin that's even secret to them. We don't even know the depths of our own sin. And John invites us to confess. In this light, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That beautiful invitation from John. Remember, John in his gospel, so this is a letter that John wrote to the church after he wrote his gospel. And if you remember in his gospel that we've been studying for months, over and over and over again, he picks up on this idea of Jesus being the light. Jesus taught, I am the light. I am the light of the world. I came to reveal. I came to expose. I came to repel and push out the darkness. Moses is picking up on that same idea, saying that our 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 iniquities and our secret sins, they are seen, as he says in Psalm 90, verse 8, in the light of your presence. God's light is revealing and it's freeing, and we're invited to step into it and to confess. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account which could be a terrifying passage if we didn't keep in context, right? And in contrast, who God is and who we are and how God interacts with us. There is a contrast between God's holiness and our unholiness. But the context of Scripture will show us that God calls us into His glorious light to set us free. And so some of us in this room we may have secret sins that we are aware of and you are hiding and suppressing. And I would just encourage you to step out in faith, to admit, to confess that sin to God, and then to find another trusted person or two to admit and to confess that to. Others in this room, we have sins that are secret to us. Maybe ask somebody that you're close to. They might see it more than you. Like, step out, take a risk. This is part of discipleship and growth and becoming like Jesus is to say, God, expose me. In your wonderful, marvelous light, expose me. Because in the light of the life of God is true life and freedom. The contrast between God's light and our dark is what we need to be set free. Moses goes on in these verses here to just talk about this contrast between our life and God's life. Verse 9, he says, For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Verse 10, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Like a common lifespan, 70, 80 years. Many people die before that. Some people live past that. That's an average lifespan. He's saying, even by reason of strength, maybe some of us will make it to 80. Some of you have made it past 80. Congratulations. Strength of life. Good job. Keep going. 
And then listen to this humbling word, yet their span is but toil and trouble. I don't like that. I want their span to be gladness and happy joy, good things. And here there's, there's this, this humbling call from Moses saying, yeah, life is full of toil and trouble. What did you expect? Look at the history of life, the context of life. It's filled with pain and struggle and trial. And, and we we're actually told this in Genesis chapter 3, right? That's part of the curse. You will work the ground and sweat and labor and you will return to dust. They are soon gone and we fly away. And this is just an imagery. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Just That's another conversation for another time. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? See how humbling this is? Moses' point here in this psalm is to give us context for life in the first couple of verses. And then he moves into giving us this contrast between who God is and who we are, who God is and who we are, who God is and who we are. And this ought to humble us. It ought to allow us to, to open up our hands a bit and to say, I'm not going to take myself so seriously. I'm not going to take my life so seriously. I'm not going to strive and work for the things that fade, as Jesus would said, as Jesus will say in the Gospels, where moths eat and destroy and rust rots and destroys. This is humbling and sobering to us. And then Moses moves it into this idea of contentment. So what now? Because of all of this, because of who God is and who we are, life in context, life in contrast, now we can live a life of contentment if we get this. There's a lot of discontentment right now in our world. And, and Moses wants us to know that if we keep life in its proper context, if we understand where life came from, who the author of life is, if we keep life in contrast, understanding who God is and who we are, then that ought to turn us into being people of contentment. Verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Here's this response, right, from Moses. So, so now that I've declared all these things, life in context and life of contrast, so now... Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's dependence here even on God from Moses. He's not saying number your days, right? Sometimes this is what pastors, politicians, leaders, parents, coaches do. They like just tell you what to do, the little waving finger. That's not Moses. He's, so God, teach us. This community, this people, teach us to number our days. He's not saying number your days, you sinners. He's saying, God, teach us to number our days. We're dependent on you to massage us into our soul. Teach us to number our days, for in that is a heart of wisdom. A couple months ago on our Monday morning prayer team, Caleb shared this psalm with our prayer team, and that's what inspired me to preach it this morning because it just was massaged in my soul as he shared this passage. And he asked the question related to chapter 12, verse 12. He said, what if, if you got news that you had one year to live, how would you live? Right? And don't think of like the Tim McGraw song, Go Skydive. You know that song? Like, um, what's the name of that song? 
Live like you were dying. Like go skydiving, have a ride a bowl named, bowl named Fu Manchu. Like whatever, go skydiving if you want. But like think that through seriously for yourself. If you got news that you had a year left to live, how would you live your life? Number your days. That, that, that's what Moses is saying to us. A heart of wisdom, a life of wisdom doesn't hold on to life. It doesn't take life for granted and it doesn't assume anything of life. It lives life as though life will pass away and it's always ready. And so I encourage you to ask yourself that question today and this week. If if you got news that you had a week, a month, a year left to live, how would you live your life? What changes would you make? And maybe we start making those changes now. Maybe you wouldn't make any changes. That would be a good life. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Again, this dependence. God, we need you. We need your compassion. We need your pity. And then verse 14, this, again, this dependence, this open-handedness, satisfy us, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. This is a heart of contentment. Lord, I want to be satisfied in you. Not all of your created gifts. Not all of creation, but in you, the creator. And satisfaction, contentment comes for us when we reflect on the steadfast, abiding love of God. Moses doesn't focus in on God's anger or wrath. He acknowledges it because there's a contrast between God's life and ours. But then he turns and he says, a life of contentment is one who can see that God is steadfast in his love. He's forgiving. He's gracious. His love is abounding. He says that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Even in verse 10, he says, remember all of our days are toil and trouble. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of life are. When we keep life in contact, context, when we look at the contrast, we can have this life of contentment because as he says in verse 10, life is toil and trouble. Yet he says in verse 14 that we can rejoice and be glad all of our days as we're dependent on God. Verse 15, make us glad. This isn't something that we can muster up on our own. It's a gift from God. God, make us glad. For as many days as you have afflicted us, there is affliction, there's discipline. For as many years as we have seen evil, there's all this. But in the midst of our circumstances, give us contentment, make us glad, satisfy us with your love. And then this leads down into verses 16 and 17. It says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Again, there's this generational passing on the story, the origin story of God, the context that we live our life in, the contrast that we live our life with, and this contentment that comes from surrendering to him. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. God, would your favor fall upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands Some people will read that and think, establish the work of our hands. We got to get to work. But look at verse 16. Verse 16 flows into verse 17. He says, let your work be shown. So God puts his favor upon us and he establishes the work of our hands when we look at him and we see his work and receive his favor. 
And in a New Testament context now, we can take this verse and interpret it as in the work of the Lord, our God is seen through the person of Jesus Christ. The one who lived the perfect life in total submission to God the Father. And now we look to him, his favor rests upon us. Moses' appeal, let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Anyone who is in Jesus Christ has the favor of God and his work may now be established in us and through us to the praise of his glorious grace. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are. I thank you that you lived life in context, same kind of life that we lived in human flesh, walking upon this earth, underneath the reign and the rule of God. You experienced contrast. You lived a light, a life of perfect light, surrounded by darkness. You saw the contrast between our sinful state and God's glorious perfection. And in that, you found contentment, and you established it for us, and you share it with us. Lord, even now, as we come to the communion table, I pray that you would meet us where we're at, Lord Jesus, and that you would produce in us contentment. May we respond like Moses here. Lord, teach us to number our days. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. Make us glad and let your work be shown among us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.